Episode 16 Warrior versus Athlete The modern sports arena is often thought of as the battleground of peacetime, a place where aggression and physical prowess can be expressed without breaking any laws or causing any deaths. But is there really a relationship between warrior cultures and modern sports? As always, these thoughts are my own musings with a few collected sources along the way. Feel free to think differently. Right, let's start by looking at the way athletes train versus how warriors train. Those who participate in combat sports are more likely to be a closer fit to the warriors of old than those who play many other sports such as tennis, basketball, marathon running and so on. Wrestlers, boxers, mixed martial artists and many other similar athletes are putting themselves in harm's way more than the others. Even the physical sports teams like rugby union and NFL football provide some semblance of warrior culture with one side pitting their physicality against another. It's still controlled with rules and referees, but it's as close as most of us will get to real warfare. These types of athletes train for strength and conditioning. Going three five-minute rounds in the UFC would sap the energy out of most people. An 80-minute game of rugby demands a good engine in the players. These athletes have to have the stamina to last the required time, while also taking the body shots. If you've ever wrestled with someone when you're both trying your best, you get an idea of how quickly you can get gassed. Not only do these athletes train their endurance, their sports require them to be strong, agile and physically resilient. A typical UFC fighter trains one and a half to two hours a day when they're out of training camp. And they do it five to six times a week, which sums up to about eight to 12 hours of training in a week. When they are in training camp, however, they spend a lot more time training. They do at least two sessions a day, varying the training intensity and type, lasting around two hours each. Near the end of the camp, the training gets the most intense, with some fighters doing up to three sessions a day, five to six times a week. A typical training regime of the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team depends on the season. In the off-season, they don't play a game on a Friday or a Saturday, and they don't really have the same level of contact training, which obviously takes its toll on the body. Typically, it means that in the off-season, they can get more work in. The type of work tends to be not that different. High-intensity running, maximal load lifting, power development, and so on. The key difference is that the players are not involved in rugby as much, and therefore can attack the gym and do more running. They tend to focus on far higher intensities. In-season training cannot be as intense as the team is more focused on recovery and injury prevention due to the high impact nature of their sport. Now we must remember that both a UFC fighter and an All Black are supported by trained nutritionists, strength and conditioning coaches and other quality trainers. How did warriors train historically? Many warrior cultures train their young warriors from a young age. Let's look at a few examples starting with the Spartans. All we know of the Spartans comes from a man named Xenophon. He was Athens-born, but exiled from his homeland and came to observe and learn the way of the Spartans. The Spartans themselves did not keep detailed records of their own culture. What follows is information taken from the Classical Wisdom website. This information is not my own, but belongs to an article written in 2014. Xenophon begins his examination with the topic of childbearing in the Spartan society. It was the aim of Sparta that all children be born healthy, strong, and grow up to be warriors. With this in mind, the Spartan women were treated with a level of equality that was unheard of in the days of ancient Greece. Rather than being confined to the household, 
Spartan women regularly competed in athletic competitions and trained, just as the men would, in a gymnasium. The idea behind such treatment is that in order to produce the best children, both the father and the mother must be healthy, fit and strong. The training of the Spartan youth was brutal, focusing on cultivating skills such as fighting, stealth, pain tolerance, as well as dancing, singing and developing loyalty to the Spartan state. With the exception of the firstborn sons of the ruling houses, the young boys of Sparta entered into this training curriculum known as agoge, starting at the age of seven. They would train in the art of fighting for decades, eventually becoming reserve infantry at the age of 18, regular foot soldiers at the age of 20, and eventually full Spartan citizens with the rights to vote and hold office at the ripe old age of 30. The specifics of the agoge training are not clear. Xenophon does describe in some detail that young boys were not allowed to fight, but were regularly encouraged to challenge each other to regular bouts. To develop a tolerance for pain, the Spartan youth were deprived of certain luxuries. For example, during the Akoge, Spartan boys were never given shoes. In time, their feet would grow hardy and strong. It is reported by Xenophon that a barefooted Spartan soldier could outrun and outclimb any other Greek citizen clad with shoes. Additionally, the boys were given only one garment of clothing. They were regularly subjected to extreme cold, all while only wearing a single cloak. In this way, the young soldiers would gain a tolerance to the elements. They were given minimal food, not so little that they would ever suffer from the sharp pangs of hunger, but never enough that their body would be completely satisfied. This was, again, a way to condition the boys for the pains of hunger and allow them to fight all the more ferociously on an empty stomach. If the boys wished to find meals outside their mess halls, it was encouraged that they should steal food. This might seem strange. While the boys were encouraged to steal, they were also severely beaten if they were ever caught in the act. Xenophon rationalises such a practice by saying that, in this way, those who lack proper stealth will be punished and learn to acquire their quarry more effectively. And so the young Spartans were crafted and honed into some of the greatest warriors of the ancient world. They knew no life than that of protecting the Spartan homeland, and they sought no higher goal than an honourable death in service of Sparta. The Mongols of the ancient world prepared their warriors from childhood as well, thanks to the Mongol tradition of having both young boys and girls participate in competitions of athletics, horse racing, wrestling, hunting and archery. The Mongol warriors, mostly men but sometimes women too, were then already proficient at using battle axes, lances, often hooked to pull enemy riders from their mounts, spears, daggers, long knives, and sometimes swords, which were typically short, light, and with a single cutting edge. Young samurai of ancient Japan also started their training from childhood, learning to serve one's lord and brandishing wooden training swords at 10 years of age or younger. Boys were sent to be raised by relatives or to the home of a fencing instructor where they were taught military tactics, archery, riding, handling a spear, and unarmed combat. Attention was also paid to the development of intellectual virtues. The medieval European knight began his life as a page somewhere between 7 to 13 years of age, learning to fight with mock weapons and gaining basic riding skills. Around 14 years of age, he was promoted to a squire. Besides learning weaponry and horsemanship, the squire was expected to look after a full knight, who might have two or more squires under him, cleaning his weapons, polishing the armour, looking after the horses, helping him dress for battle, holding his shield until required, and other such general duties. Finally, around 18 to 20 years old, 
he was dubbed a full knight. The theme here is obvious. Warrior cultures prepared their warriors from a young age so that they would have the skills that would allow them to survive on the battlefield. Can we really compare the training of modern athletes in the same way? Well, let's have a look. I can think of New Zealand's national sport of rugby as an example. I was playing rugby barefoot on cold winter mornings at primary school. There is a culture of teaching our youth the game which builds a deep talent pool that the national side can call on as each player matures. It is also a professional sport so there is a possibility of making a living from it. At the elite level, rugby players are in amazing physical shape and demonstrate sublime skill. But is this the same as the youth of ancient warrior cultures? Unfortunately, I don't think so. We are a modern people with modern lives. A typical rugby player would have one training session a week and then a Saturday game, and this would only last over the winter season. An elite UFC fighter might have started his or her journey in their late teens. Ronda Rousey started judo when she was 11, going to her first Olympic Games when she was 17. Conor McGregor had his first amateur MMA fight at the age of 18. Whereas the training of a warrior culture's youth started much younger and was daily. Their lives depended on it. The stakes are very different. Now I'm going to move away from physicality and focus on mindset and attitudes. To do this, sorry, to do this, I will need to break down sports into the individual pursuits and the team sports because I think they create a slightly different mindset. An article put out by the Fresno Pacific University has this to say. Individual sports emphasize the training and dedication needed to succeed in sports where each player has only themselves to count on. Team sports emphasize cooperation with others, working together as a team, and finding ways to win through managing the strengths and weaknesses of other players. End quote. So individual sports have the luxury of the athlete only thinking about themselves. However, they also feel the pressure of losing, and it can be a lonely pursuit. Athletes must believe they are number one to become the best. They must develop a supreme confidence that generates quite an ego. Self-doubt is a weakness they cannot afford. Yet when they do lose, it can be devastating. Ronda Rousey was a female UFC phenomenon who defended her title six consecutive times. But when she lost in her seventh title defense, she is quoted as saying she actually contemplated suicide. What you tend to find in warrior cultures is that the group is greater than the individual. In fact, it was paramount that one be polite and respectful around others. The consequences could be getting yourself killed or maimed. Just think of the strict etiquette of samurai Japan as an example. Being an arrogant jerk was not great for survival. Yet this type of attitude can get a modern athlete quite far. I sometimes wonder at the posturing and arrogance exhibited by the top MMA fighters as they trash talk their way towards their fight day. Don't get me wrong, these people are absolute beasts and I wouldn't want to tussle with them, but is their attitude the best way to represent the sport? A person like that was dangerous in a warrior society because they didn't care about anyone else but themselves. They couldn't be trusted to look after the vulnerable members of the tribe. In Genghis Khan's Mongolian culture, motivation was high because booty was shared equally. Commanders could expect to receive both booty and land or tribute from conquered peoples. Ordinary soldiers could expect rewards too, some compensation for their conscription, which any Mongol male from 14 to 60 years old was liable for. At the same time as being generous with rewards, Genghis insisted on discipline and any soldier or commander who disobeyed orders were severely punished, lashings being the commonest method. An ordinary soldier could expect nothing less than the death penalties for desertion, 
retreating when not ordered to, or sleeping when on sentry duty. In Native American culture, warriors raided other tribes to bring back resources to their community. They didn't hold all the wealth themselves. In modern sports teams, uh, each individual must be capable of performing to the best of their abilities and yet ensure that their actions are synchronized with the requirements of the group. Any individual concerned only with their own objectives invariably disrupts the team and reduces the success of the group. Is this closer to what we find in warrior culture? Modern war veterans speak of the unshakable bonds they form with their peers. Sports teams also form a type of camaraderie that comes with winning and losing as a group. So maybe the crossover between warrior and athlete is closer in team sports. Take a moment to imagine two teams walking out onto a rugby field somewhere in the world. The team captain holds the respect of his teammates, or so he hopes. Amongst both teams, there are the players whom the others look to for inspiration and hope. They are the warriors of the modern game. In terms of the warfare of the game, they are the champions. On the sideline is the coach who is, in terms of the warfare of the game, the strategist, the general. In the stands are the fans, dressed in the colours of their team, fiercely loyal, elated when their team scores a victory, feeling despair when their team faces defeat. In fact, when all the All Blacks rugby team once sorry, when the All Blacks rugby team once lost a game, my brother in law was quoted as saying, The nation was in mourning. The loyalty can run deep. Perhaps it is in team sports that we get the closest to a warrior culture. This is not to take away from the ferocity and skill of an athlete trained in boxing, MMA, or any other single competitive pursuit. The fact remains the word culture, by its very meaning, requires shared experiences and ideas within a group, something a team sport provides. A team is only as good as its weakest player, and the group follows a certain set of rules to ensure everyone follows along. Senior players reprimand the young bucks if they get too cocky, the juniors provide the energy and innovation some seniors may lack, and the captain leads the way. The team celebrates a win together, and if they lose, they lick their wounds together. This builds a bond, a certain trust. That has to be earned. So that's my take. We can see the relationship between ancient warrior cultures and today's modern athlete. It is there, hidden within the rituals of team sports. Now for the quote of the episode. This is by Stephen Ambrose, author of the book Band of Brothers. This is what he writes. Within easy company, they had made the best friends they'd ever had or would ever have. They were prepared to die for each other. More important, They are prepared to kill for each other.